Finally, Frank Day's moment came, down into the tunnel, onto a trolley. He was pulled forward. I got to Piccadilly Circus, he remembers. There were perhaps two men ahead of him, 50 yards to freedom. While he waited to move to Leicester Square, he realised that something had gone wrong. Outside, a hard arser had emerged from the tunnel almost at the feet of a sentry, who saw the tracks in the snow and fired into the woods. We never heard it in the tunnel, says Day, but he knew the escape had been rumbled. He shouted to the men behind him, I said, bloody hell, something's happening at the other end. Those at the tunnel's exit now frantically headed back into it. Day began reversing as best as he could. I came back into the hut, there was a panic on. There were all these goons in the room saying, Rouse, Rouse, move it. The cooler awaited. Day and about ten others were led off to a regime of two slices of bread in the morning and all the water we wanted. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Small boys like myself at prep school in England in the 70s were very occasionally entertained with a movie, a flickering much past about 16mm projection, on a Saturday night. Most popular were war movies. They were generally heroic epics, the heroes of Telemark, 633 Squadron, The Cruel Sea, The Dambusters, and of course, The Great Escape. As part of the package, they generally came with a tub-thumping and memorable theme tune, something to whistle or hum in the days that followed to offset grey winter afternoons, bad food and boredom. The Great Escape had one of the best tunes. Jamie, you're going to hate this. Yes, I do hate it. (laughs) Anyway, on we go. The tune was to go with our fantasy games, which included goons, ferrets, stooges, penguins, the big X being put in the cooler, and, of course, Tom, Dick and Harry, the tunnels. A.J. Evans, a POW in World War I, said, Escape is the greatest sport in the world. But it was dangerous. It took organisation, perseverance and huge courage. There are the famous camps we know of, Starlag Luft Three and Kolditz. All very romantic, but the reality, the reality was grim. Grim, dangerous, and once behind the wire, almost certainly you were not likely to succeed in escaping. Here are two readings from an interview conducted by Marcus Scriven with Frank Day, who was a prisoner in Stalag Luft Three. The small crisply focused photographs in his Red Cross scrapbook offer a sanitised glimpse of conditions, eliminating the stench and the hunger, the boredom and frustration. Those in Stalag Luft III, a massive officers-only camp with several different compounds covering nearly 60 acres, were given one communal shower a month. You often had to stand there for five minutes before any water came out, remembers Day. Food, or the lack of it, concerned him far more. Red Cross parcels, which arrived roughly once a month, were vital. They had to be shared between eight, but you got a bit of butter, a bit of jam, a biscuit and clim, a Canadian milk powder. Better still, there were cigarettes for bartering with the goons, as their guards were known. Two would get you four eggs. 
Rations provided by the Germans were less appealing. There was horsehead stew. If you were lucky, you got an eye. And black bread. Somebody killed a guard dog somewhere along the line. You've got to be very hungry before you eat a dog. Even then, though, Day and his fellow officers were aware that things could have been infinitely worse. During the winter of 1943-44, a group of Russian prisoners had arrived, bearded and very badly dressed. Marched into a field between two compounds, they were ordered to dig. That's where they had to stay for the whole winter, in a hole in the ground. Potatoes were occasionally thrown to them by the goons. In the spring, they were finally allowed into the wash house. Day saw three or four of them stagger to its windows, where they collapsed and died. Jamie, let's start with inertia and the will to escape. Well, there always is this tension between those who want to escape and those who want to stay, those who want to sit back and see out the end of the war. I think it's basic human instinct that if you're behind the wire, if you don't know how long the war is going to last, you basically want to survive. You just want to sit there and not rock the boat. Quite a lot of the people who wanted to escape really got up the noses of those who wanted to just stay put, concentrate on self-improvement, concentrate on keeping alive and being fed. Yeah. And if you've got a situation where you're taking on board 1,100 to 1,500 calories a day and it's supplemented by Red Cross parcels, why would you want to move? Why would you want to go out and put all your energy into doing something that was unlikely to succeed? And one of the problems is that if you look at the RAF, there were about 10,000 Royal Air Force prisoners behind the wire in the Second World War. Of those, fewer than 30 actually made home runs. So it was a minority activity actually succeeding in getting back home. But on the other hand, it was also the duty of officers to try and get back home that if they saw an opportunity, they were obliged to take it. And in military law, it was actually a court-martial offence, a possibility of being charged with desertion, if you didn't take that opportunity. So a lot of those RAF officers certainly believed that as individuals, as fighter pilots, as bomber crew, it was their duty to get back. And I, I think there was a sort of basic, innate aggression within them that made them want to be fighting men in the first place. If you've been shooting down Mesher Smiths or Fokker Wilson, you shot down yourself, if you've been bombing Germany, it, it, it's really part of your being that you want to get back and continue the fight. Yeah, you're in the war to finish the war. That's correct. I think where you started getting a few problems in terms of motivation to escape were really in things like the NCO camps, because in a way, they were more democratic. A lot of them had the same rank. So people had to take a vote. You didn't have to take a vote on the whole in a officer camp, because you had a hierarchy. You had the organisation of escape committees and all of that sort of thing. You also had, among the men of the armed forces, and there were 170,000 of them as prisoners of war in Germany and around Germany during the Second World War. A lot of them were used as forced labour or to work on farms. And yes, they escaped. I mean, there were over a 1,000 in the Second World War because they had the opportunity. They were outside the wire. But again, a lot of them, if they were being fed, if they were being looked after, or even if they weren't being looked after, if they were being starved and used as forced labour, the instinct to flee 
wasn't there. You know, they didn't have the structure around them that allowed them to get back home. Yeah, and jumping over the war was just the start of many difficulties ahead. Yes, but as I said, it, it was really the duty of an officer to get back. And also it provided valuable intelligence, people getting out, even if they were caught. They, they would get to local train stations or they might get to the border before they were recaptured. So they would get a lot of information and feed it back. And escape was really an evolution throughout the war. You know, people became more experienced at it. If you take someone like Harry Wings Day, he escaped six times, including the great escape from Stalagla III. And then, for a seventh time, he actually managed to tunnel out of Sachsenhausen concentration camp. So you got these inveterate escapers who just absolutely wanted to get back home. And it was good for the morale of the camp to see people get, to get out. Yeah, and it, uh, it provided a whole sort of industry of activity. Yes, it gave something to do. So th- there was enormous industry, and we'll talk about this later. But you know, whether it was thieving or pickpocketing or getting one over the jerry, goon baiting, as they called it, it was all part of the process, all part of getting through. And if you look at Stalagra III, it, it's estimated that two-thirds of the prisoners were involved in escape activities. In Kulditz, the entire 400 people there who were known as the bad boys, and it was known as the bad boys camp, all of them were engaged in some kind of escape activity. After the 9 p.m. appell, the roll call, they called it the night shift. They would just go on to the offensive. They would pick locks, they would go through the castle, start their tunnels, build their disguises, you name it. It was an absolute process, and they became extremely good at it. But by June 1944, there was no point in escaping. Yes. By the time the Allies landed, people thought, let's stay put. Why put lives at risk? And and it actually became a a command from the senior officers, from the escape organisations, don't start going out. And certainly after the 50 were killed, after the Great Escape in spring 1944, uh, there was less impetus to get out. But, well, one would think that. But, of course, what happens? People start agitating, going, well, you know, we still want to be focused on escape. So you started to get other tunnels being built. I mean, people don't know much about Tunnel George, but that was built in the north compound in Stalagla Three. It was built under the theatre. And, of course, the, the soil, the spoil from... Tunnel Harry from the Great Escape, that had been put under the seating, under the tiered seating of the auditorium of the theatre, which is a 350-seat theatre. But this Tunnel George was built under the stage. And what happened? The lovies, the amdrammers of the camp, really put up a fight against it, almost went on strike and tried to prevent it. You know, they said, but it will ruin our production. Uh, what's now, the point? Now steady on, Jamie. My, my mother's godfather was very much involved in <laughs> the amdrams at Starlake 3. <laughs> but, they, the, the distraction when they were all trying to escape. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the thing is, the, there were plenty of people who didn't want to get involved in an escape. And, and a lot of the people after the Great Escape, A, they didn't want to be shot because of the Kugel order from the uh, Gestapo, which meant that people were going to be disappeared and executed, murdered. 
But also people didn't want to lose their bedboards to shore up a tunnel. When Tom, Dick and Harry were being built at Stalagler Three, everyone ended up sort of living in hammocks because the bedboards had been taken out from under their mattresses. <laughs> you know, in, there was a camp uh, called Laufen, which was off Lag 7C, and just a basic tunnel there used 1,200 bedboards. So you can see the industry involved in that whole process. And there were still people who wanted to get out. There was another tunnel, actually, after 1944, after the spring 1944 uh, Tunnel Harry. That was built on the football pitch, on the which was also used as a parade ground. Tunnel Margaret. That was Tunnel Margaret. Yeah. And that was uh, the East Compound. And it was brilliant. Every time the, the Brits formed up uh, in their ranks, in the middle of the ranks, someone was digging a tunnel. And they managed to dig it out under the wire, um, cover it up while they were playing football and people were underground digging. And then when they formed up again and were marched out, the people would come up in the middle of the ranks and, and be counted and march off again. And that was a tunnel, but it, it was never used. The, again, after the June 1944 landings in Normandy, the, the impetus really ebbed away. And as I said, the senior command sort of put the kibosh on it. And what were the Germans thinking? What was their mindset while all this was going on? Well, we've talked about national stereotypes before, and I think one can make a lot of it, but there's no doubt that the Germans on the whole think, or certainly thought in those days, in a very linear fashion rather than a lateral fashion. They thought orders are orders, a locked door is a locked door, nothing can be going on behind that locked door, which is why at Kulditz, the prisoners spent much of their time breaking into the German quarters. There was no lock that was left unpicked. And they started tunnels in all sorts of areas, in the in the German section of the castle, including under the desk of the <laughs> RSM. And that was one of the most successful escapes, actually. They dropped through the floor, got into the clothing store, dressed both as German soldiers and as Polish labourers, and just carried clothing out in boxes and got, got out from Kulditz. And the Germans never quite got their heads around the sort of escape mentality of the prisoners. They couldn't deal with it at all. And in the same way that the British loved goon baiting, and they did it in every sense. They were water bombing them, they were dropping pebbles on the sentries, they were playing brass bands while it's the roll like call was underway. Well, exactly. Mm. And and it, it was sport. And you know, if you go to places like Colditz, you can see exactly why they indulged in it. It was just something to do, something so, to give them focus. So to escape, it was your duty. If you did escape, you could gather intelligence. It was good for morale for everybody, and it was frustrating the German war effort. That was the sort of essence behind it. Yes, they desperately wanted to mess up the Germans, and, and they did that very successfully. I mean, at Kulditz, they produced a fake body and used to put it down on a wire so it looked like someone escaping. The Germans would fire volley after volley at it. It would then drop, looking like a guy had been shot. And when the Ru Germans rushed towards it, it would suddenly shoot up in the air again. Oh, my God, that's straight out of... If you ever saw Dame Edna Everest, you remember somebody used to fall out of one of the um, balcony seats halfway through the show, and, and they'd think, you know, it was an accident and somebody had toppled head first out. It's I think it came from that. Well, it's classic music hall, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and so th this was going on all the time. The Germans really couldn't get their heads around it. And, 
you know, we talk about escapes and prisoner of war, British and American and French and that sort of thing. But, you know, I don't think we should forget that for many prisoners, certainly the Russians, for example, the Germans had a totally different attitude. You know, their attitude was a thing called vernicht durch Arbeit, extermination through labor. And that applied both to the Jews and to the Slavs. And out of 5.7 million uh, Russian prisoners of war, of those, three million died, and they were worked to death. And so a lot of prisoners of war from other nations didn't have the capacity, didn't have the opportunity to escape. And, you know, so in a way, our prisoners you know, were, were lucky. They had that option, even if they weren't always successful. OK, we're going to move on now to wild and wacky plans versus the simple plan. Escaping, what did it take to escape? Well, it took imagination and it took courage, but it was always a sort of competition, really, between those who went for the simple approach and those who went for the quite sophisticated approach. And escape is the mother of invention. You basically improvise. You steal, you adapt... You change clothes, you disguise yourself, you do everything you can to get over the wire or under the wire. You can see some amazing plans coming through, and it was an evolution through the war. Uh, you know, at, uh, at Offlag 7C at Laufen, uh, there was an attempt to basically short the lights and knock them out and see how long they stayed out for before people got over the wire. And so someone put razor blades on a broomstick and went and severed the wire, and that worked. By the time you get to Stalaglov three, what they did at Sargon was produce a catapult to try and fire a weight carrying a line 60 yards over the wire and short the lights. And they tested it, and what it did was simply blow the walls of the barrack hut down. So, yeah. it, it I thought you were going to say we're going to fire the escapees over the fence. <laughs> well, they probably would have come up with that idea eventually. And if you look at some of the ideas that came up, I mean, there were loads of glider ideas at places like Spannenberg, which was another castle like Kulditz, and they never took flight. Uh, there was one guy who came up with the idea of using the methane from the latrines at Stalagler 3 to, to power an air balloon that would take him over the wall. That never took off. Uh, again, at Spannenberg, there were ideas for using the telephone line, the, the, the lines from the castle, to produce a trolley car that you could run down and, and get outside, get over the dry moat. Like a sort of modern-day zip wire. Yes, yeah. and that never went together. Actually, there was an American prisoner who tried that, and the, the line just sagged, and he was caught sitting in his trolley car. Yeah. Too many burgers. Well, he was, <laughs> he was very lucky not to be shot. So, yeah. so there were some extraordinary plans, yeah. uh, and, and many of them didn't get off the ground. And there was, of course, the famous glider at Kulditz, which was being built, but the war ended before it ever took flight. And they have tested a replica of it, and it did actually fly. So there were many inventions that never matured to the operational stage, but they probably would have done had the war continued. All right, well, so 
crazy plans is all very well, but actually the simple plan is the one that probably works best. They're essentially the targets of opportunity. So it's often the individual involved rather than a massive organisation. So uh, places like Stalagler 3, where you got uh, a lot of RAF and American uh, pilots and air crew uh, incarcerated. By the end of the war, there were 10,000. There were all sorts of attempts to get out. I mean, every time the tree fellers came in to dig up the furs that littered the area, you got people jumping onto the trucks and hiding in the wood. One one guy hid under and hid, held onto the axle, and the Germans knew he'd be under there. So they just drove it over rough ground <laughs> to, <laughs> shake, to shake him off. Yeah. And there was a guy who climbed into the dung cart and was almost asphyxiated. Two others were almost stifled when they were in the laundry bags and couldn't get out, and they were left at the front gate, but they were discovered. One guy got into the empty cans cart full of empty tins and he had made a cape covered in tins and disguised himself very well but he had to give himself up when the germans started spearing the tins oh dear the uh, tin man <laughs> well that was always the problem you you always got the germans putting pitchforks and bayonets and everything into things that got out but there were so many attempts uh, at a camp called bath on the baltic they used to take the dirty laundry down into the town and someone hid in that. There were people hidden in concealed compartments of boxes that were taken out all the time. This was relentless. And it must have tired the Germans out to, to constantly keep an eye out for this and see where the next little ruse was. It really was constant. But the Germans, uh, I mean, the alternative for them would be fighting on the Eastern Front, so they probably... Uh, prepared that job well that's why they didn't want to get it wrong but you know, there, and there were some uh, amazing disguises that people used as well i mean people used to wander out in all sorts of disguises i mean one went out in a snowstorm dressed as the local chimney sweep he even had a cardboard top hat and uh, it started to crumple slightly in the snow but he got through the wire he got out through the gate but was uh, caught very soon after that the Dutch were good at coming up with simple plans. Oh, they were extremely good at the simple plan. I mean, one of them was uh, an officer hiding under the cape of another as he read to a crowd in their exercise area. And that exercise area, the park as it was known, became a, a, a key part of escape because it meant you could get through the four gates of the castle from the prisoner compound, get into the exercise yard, and if you could get over the wall and the wire... You were, you were away. So this officer hid... Was un- that at Kulditz? That was at Kulditz. Yeah. And, and the Dutch officer hid, the small Dutch officer, hid under the cape of this big Dutch officer. <laughs> and he dug himself a little grave. So when they all got up to leave, he was under the ground. But of course, two Alsatians came in, the guard dogs came in to sniff the area and they discovered him very quickly. Yeah. Uh, another Dutch plan involved getting through a manhole cover in that exercise yard, putting a glass fake bolt uh, on the manhole cover. So when the Germans checked it, they thought no one had opened it. But in fact, there was a man underground. And at night, he would break through the glass bolt, uh, climb over the wire and get away. So they were very successful at that. And they came up with a plan, the Dutch, that, that involved having mannequins, or at least the heads, these dummy heads, 
two of them they had, and they, they were attached by a ring to someone's arm. So it looked like another person standing next to you in the roll call. So they could cover up if someone was away. They, they were probably also um, able to speak German, I should think, some of them, weren't they? Yes, a lot of them, and certainly a lot of the Poles did as well. Yeah. But these mannequins, these dummies, became increasingly sophisticated. And by the time you get to the sort of Stalag Luft camps, you had the Brits and Americans producing dummies that had football bladders that went up and down, so it looked as if they were breathing in bed. They, they could have someone manipulating on a wire a leg to move it or you know, move an arm so that the Germans didn't approach because they thought someone living was in the bed. So you could cover up you know, if someone was away. And so that became a very sophisticated side of things as well. A another attempt at escape came at Kulditz where French POWs were coming from the town to pick up mattresses, straw-filled palliasses, and the Brits collared one of them on a landing and said, look, can we get an officer in there? And the, the negotiation that went on was absolutely classic, uh, according to Pat Reed. Is it like the negotiation over our fish? Well, it, it very much so. I mean, apparently the, the, the sort of exchange went along the lines of uh, uh, do it for France. And the Frenchman went, but France doesn't exist anymore. And they said, do it for your fellow countrymen. I don't like my fellow countrymen. And anyway, they, they, they managed to persuade him. And he carried the officer down, this, this small officer down in this palliasse and threw it onto the... Palias truck and when he was taking a second one down the other Frenchman refused to throw it onto the truck so they drove the truck away and this guy was left in a mattress lying on the road ready for the Germans to get him and so that happened so it was opportunistic moments sometimes they succeeded sometimes they didn't. I mentioned my mother's godfather Peter Tomlinson when he was shot down. He was flying a Spitfire on reconnaissance after a bombing mission, so it was a high-altitude uh, flight with no weapons on the plane, and his fuel lines froze over Holland, and so he had to either crash land or parachute out, I'm not sure which. But anyway, when he came round, he's on the ground, when he came round, he said, uh, Dutch... And they went, yeah, yeah, Deutsch, Deutsch. And he thought he was about to be rescued by the Dutch, but unfortunately it was the Germans, and he ended up in Starleg 3. Well, it is the British mastery of languages, isn't it? We are good at that. <laughs> it's you and your French all over again. Don't complain about my French. It's very refined. <laughs> my favourite escape attempt has really got to be the cross-dresses because they, they really make me laugh. And the best of those was really some guy, some British officer who was in a sick bay and he spotted a nurse's cap and cape on the back of the door. So he, he put them on thinking, I am going to be a nurse. And so he went out, strode out, confident that he would get quite far. But what he had overlooked was firstly that he had a large bushy moustache and secondly he was wearing flying boots. <laughs> so talk about Emily, the unconvincing transvestite. He, he gets the prize. Yes, uh, and, and I believe the French, uh, a French officer also decided to impersonate a German Fraulein. Oh, that was a very famous case because uh, he had spent a year getting supplies from his wife uh, back in France and he had the whole caboodle and the... The British and others were in a 
group heading for the exercise ground, suddenly this stunning Fräulein walked past. She was extremely disdainful, totally ignored the cat calls, the wolf whistles, <laughs> the lewd suggestions. And she was wearing a hat and she was in her silk stockings and her high heel shoes tottering along, heading for the castle. And uh, she dropped her watch. And a British officer, being a perfect gent, ran after her or tried to run after her, saying she's dropped her watch. And the guard grabbed the watch and ran after himself. When he addressed this Fräulein, she turned round. And I think the wig, the blonde wig, must have slipped because oh, yeah. he, she was promptly discovered. Oh, dear. One of the least convincing ones was actually Pat Reed himself. And he recounts this in, in the Colditz story, because before Colditz, he was at Laufen at 7C, which was actually the Archbishop of Salzburg's palace, where Mozart used to compose and play uh, many of his compositions. It had been turned into prison of all camp. But anyway, Pat Reed was... Uh, really among the first successful tunnelers in uh, POW history in the Second World War, because in 1940 he managed to tunnel out and he decided to dress as a woman with his food bags basically um, as his chest, uh, with a homemade blouse and skirt and with a scarf tied round his head. And he, he, he was doing pretty well. He was getting through a town. No one paid him much attention, but in, this little girl came out and just stared at him with her mouth open and then ran off traumatised. So was he, yes, I'm looking at this picture, he looked like a small pretty girl. Yeah, well, there you go. That's why he didn't get very far. Yes. So I don't think he'd have a job in a review, basically. Yes. So actually, that reminds me of the uh, one of the reviews at Cold. It's called Ballet Nonsense, where these heavily moustachioed men were all wearing paper ballet tutus and doing the, doing plies and things on stage. But I guess you had to make your own entertainment in those days and in yeah. those circumstances. So that's the cross-dressing out of the way. But, you know, there were so many attempts. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that people did was go for the, the simple ones, which was dressing as a ferret, dressing as one of the Germans who used to come into the camps with a screwdriver and a torch to try and find out where the tunnels were. And they were always on patrol in these camps. They were So these were what, German, German NCOs who, whose specific job was to find tunnels and, and escaping yes, prisoners? Yes, yeah. and quite often they would hide, hide in the roofs or underwoods. And there was one ferret who once dug up through a tunnel and found himself trapped in a secret compartment. The POWs so couldn't get out. So there was all this going on. And, and so there were several attempts where POWs would dress as ferrets because it was a simple outfit to, to make. Where it became more sophisticated, more of a challenge, was producing and tailoring uh, German uniforms, be they officers or men. And there were so many attempts um, along those lines, and some of them were totally ingenious. And, you know, some of them had full kit. I mean, they had full webbing, they had proper holsters because there were many corrupt Germans who would sell them the holsters for cigarettes and chocolate. Um, otherwise, holsters and webbing were made out of linoleum. There was a whole industry going on at the time. OK, talk us through some of the attempts at impersonating Germans. Well, that was constant and my favourite actually was at the Bath camp near the Baltic where 
the guards used to come in every night to pull down the shutters on the barrack huts. And two Brits simply came from different barrack huts dressed as German soldiers, and they fell in behind the other guards as they headed out. But one of the guards tried to engage in conversation, and the Brit could only go, yeah, nine. And so he was discovered very quickly, but his accomplice had to be one of the guards who rounded him up and were marching him towards the cooler for a bit of solitary. And an officer came out and... uh, did a count and said, but hang on, you've still got one too many, at which point the guards started arguing amongst each other on who was an imposter, and there was almost a punch-up. So anyway, the second escapee was discovered as well, but it, it just showed how difficult it was for the Germans to control these POWs and to try and spot an imposter or an impersonator. And, and if they were caught, what would happen to them, the prisoners? Oh, they would be put in the cooler for a particular length. It depends how far they got. It depends how pissed off the commandant was, uh, how much trouble they had put the guards to. Uh, there were many factors at play. And the cooler was, what, solitary confinement? That was, was reduced the, food or something? Or Quite often it was reduced food or they wouldn't get their Red Cross parcel. There, there were many things that could happen to um, prisoners, but the, the cooler was really part of the regime. And a lot of people spend most of their time in the cooler for all their escape attempts. Uh, another brilliant attempt, and made very famous, really, as part of the coldest story, was Mike Sinclair, who was an inveterate escaper, and he did not like being banged up inside Kulditz. He and two colleagues lured themselves, again from the German section, onto the terrace. Sinclair was disguised as the sergeant major, uh, he, he was nicknamed Franz Josef because he looked like the emperor he, he, with whiskers and was you know, big beard. He and these two German impersonators went around relieving the sentries and it worked very well until Sinclair got to the gate and the guard on duty there refused to let him through. There was no plan B, so <laughs> Sinclair just started shouting at him. And this brought all the other guards over and there was a, a scuffle there was huge commotion and it ended up actually with Sinclair being shot in the chest he survived but a year later he was actually killed while jumping the wire and it was an absolute tragedy he was the only fatality in all the time at Kulditz and he was buried with full military honours but we'll come to that story but the Franz Josef story was legendary in Kulditz and it, it almost worked in another camp There was a very simple escape attempt where two guards would march a group of prisoners out to watch football or to do exercise. And on one occasion, there was a Brit at the front of the group. And as they turned at right angles and the two guards at the back couldn't see what was happening, this guy took off his coat, threw it over a hedge, and he was in a German uniform underneath. He put on a cap and he just marched back the other way, past the two guards, and they simply thought he was a German officer minding his own business. So he actually got quite far, but was caught eventually. But it just showed the sort of ingenuity and the thought that went into it, and it took certain observation, it took improvisation, and it took uh, a certain amount of chutzpah and devotion to the cause of escape. Many of the elements of escape and evasion in World War II hold truth today. 
Here are some extracts from the Counter-Terrorist Handbook by Jamie Jackson. Clothing. You may have little choice in this, especially if you've just escaped from captivity. If you get the chance, change into local clothing that allows you to blend in and avoids making you look like a stranger on the run. If necessary, steal. Alternatively, improvise low-visibility garb by cutting old sacking into pieces to create a coat or leggings. Equipment. Again, your options may be limited. Improvise where you can. Ensure that any heavy items can be quickly dropped in an emergency. Keep all essential small items in your pockets or around your neck. If in a group, divide equipment and rations up between everyone, wherever possible and however rough the detail, each member should carry some kind of map. Moving through an inhabited area. Where you cannot avoid being seen, put on a bold front. Do not appear furtive, as this arouses suspicion. If possible, assume a fictitious role or identity. Carry a spade, axe, or other item of equipment. Never stop on your line of march. Your aim is to put distance between yourself and your pursuers. The greater the distance, the harder it will be for them to track you. The longer it will take for them to catch up, the wider the area they will have to search. Keep moving. If you must stop to get your bearings, to drink, or to read a map or compass, move off into cover. Halting on a track or line of march or at any form of junction is highly inadvisable. You will present a standing target to anyone lying in wait or creeping up behind. Lowering your profile applies as much to evasion techniques as it does to basic counter-terrorist security measures. They would be often wearing three sets of clothing because they had their sort of prison garb, their officer's uniform and then underneath their civilians is that how it works that's absolutely right and some of them look slightly overweight and and they would be trying to carry uh, suitcases and other things that made them look like civilians uh, out in germany so you know there was one escape attempt uh, again they relied on lack of communication among the germans or change of guard and they would slip under the net at that particular moment in stalagler 3 the prisoners pretended that they had discovered lice. And the one thing the Germans were terrified of was a typhus outbreak because it could have infected the surrounding area and that would have been a catastrophe. So they basically introduced a delousing programme. So what happened? There were several British dressed as Germans, as officers and soldiers. They had another group of officers behind to engage the guards at the gate and make sure they didn't look you know at the too closely at the germans who had passed through just before over two dozen uh, brits uh, marched out to freedom uh, they didn't last very long they got into the woods and then the alarm went up but at least they got out through the wire and that was the sort of attempt that was uh, quite common in these camps the famous escape attempt by Airy Neve was a success and probably one of the reasons it worked was because he was a German speaker. Yes, if you were a German speaker, it always helped. And it's quite interesting that in any of the large-scale escape attempts, it was German speakers who were really at the forefront because they had the most chance of escape. And so they tended to get the best papers, for example, the best forgeries. And Airy Neve and his companion got through the floor of the theatre at Kolditz, basically let themselves down, lured themselves into the German officer's mess. And rather than 
making a run for it. They stood around chatting in German, putting on their gloves, and they were in full greatcoats and full uniform. As they went out, the guards saluted, and Erin Eve was free. So starting from the German side of the camp, as I said, was always the best place, was always the way to go, because it was so much more complex trying to dig tunnels from the prison section. Now we're going to move on to fence jumpers and wire cutters. Obviously, anyone who's seen The Great Escape has seen Steve McQueen attempting to jump the wire on his motorbike, but that was not what happened in this case. No, and you needed serious raw courage to cut through a fence or try and climb it because that was open season for the goons, for the German sentries to fire at you and try and kill you. In any camp, you basically had a warning wire about 30 feet inside the main perimeter fence. And at places like Stalagluf 3, there were two 10-foot fences. So there was a lot of wire to get through, a lot of distracting that had to be done to allow you to get to that point. You know, one of the most famous ones was at Kulditz when a French officer, Le Brun, basically vaulted one of his companions. They were doing leapfrog and athletics in the exercise ground beyond the castle walls. Two of his companions cupped their hands and made a stirrup for him and propelled him into the air, and he vaulted over a nine-foot fence and got away. Uh, later, he broke his back in Spain because the Spanish imprisoned him, and he tried to escape from that, and he fell and damaged his spine and never fully recovered from it, but at least he got away, and it was an incredible escape. There was another escape in Stalagla III where an American member of the Eagle Squadron and a Brit decided that there was a blind spot in the wire, that they had checked the goon boxes. And this, again, took extraordinary courage. What they did is they got everyone in the camp to provide diversions for those in the sentry boxes and the goon boxes. You know, you had a boxing match going on, you had someone kicking a football over into the no-man's land and asking, calling to the sentry to allow him to go and get it, and that happened several times. You had someone playing the accordion, you had someone playing a cornet. These two guys got to the wire, cut it, pegged it back, and got through, got out. But they were later recaptured. But it was a very brave attempt. The third example was Mike Sinclair, who you mentioned before. He was shot in the chest, but he had recovered from that Franz Josef episode. He just couldn't stick, stick being in Colditz. And he tried to climb the fence. And he was smashed in the head with the rifle butt of a guard, but kept on running, kept on climbing, and ran, and he was shot, and the bullet ricocheted off his elbow, entered his heart, and he was killed. So th that was a really tragic case. But it just showed how desperate some people were to get out. They couldn't go on in that confined environment. The, um, the tunnels that are famous are these long tunnels like Tom, Dick and Harry, but there were moles as well, digging short tunnels. Oh, there were some very short tunnels at Stalaglo Three. Uh, there were people got into a drain, started digging a tunnel. It uh, essentially took them two days. People could see the steam rising up through their air holes that they had dug, and everyone thought the Germans would discover it, but they didn't, and all the prisoners were told to totally ignore it and not look suspicious. 
again, the people got away, got onto the wire and managed to escape. The, the Germans responded by digging a ditch so there wouldn't be moltons. So what happened? Prisoners got into the ditch and started tunnelling. So the Germans then basically got in workmen to fill in the ditch. Do you think these people all became miners after the war? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Mining engineers. It may well be. So the Germans decided to fill in the ditch. So what happened? You then got the next tranche of escape attempts because uh, some Brits turned up. They got shovels from people working in the gardening area. They started digging tunnels to try and get through that ditch. They didn't get very far. Well, they were pretending to be workmen. They were pretending yeah. to be workmen or gardeners with their shovels, and they saw the real gardener or workman approaching, so they retreated back to the garden where they had pinched the shovels from these guys working there. It turned out that the people working in the garden were working on their own escape attempt and trying to get rid of the sand from a tunnel. So there was always this possibility of conflict of one attempt colliding with another and that's why there was such a need for escape organizations both within the British POWs and the Americans but also liaison between the different nationalities so that you wouldn't get uh, the Germans coming down hard because they had noticed that the Poles, for example, were trying to escape and that trod on the feet of the Brits or the French. So there was always that sort of problem. So whether it was a wild or wacky plan or a simple plan, the most well-known stories about escaping involved digging tunnels. Yes, and there were hundreds of them. I mean, at Bath alone, uh, on the Baltic, uh, there were over 50 tunnels uh, being dug in a two-year period. Um, there were another 50 the following two years. So it was going on all the time. At Schubin, there were another 50 tunnels. There were tunnels going on all the time at Stalagla III until Roger Bushell turned up in the North Compound and said, right, we're going to just concentrate on three top tunnels. And so Tom, Dick and Harry became the ones that were developed and dug. And because it was sandwiched. So, sorry, it was, so it was, before that it was a bit of a free-for-all, was it? Everybody having a go, doing whatever they wanted. There was a bit of a free-for-all. I mean, there were 40 tunnels being dug at any one time in the east compound before the Brits were moved to the north compound. So a bit more order was introduced. And because it was sandy soil, you could actually get through it quite quickly. When uh, Tunnel Harry was being dug, I think the record was 14 feet in one night. Uh, another night it was 12 feet. And those were records in terms of digging tunnels because you had to shore them up, you had to put in the air ducts, you had to get the sand back, you had to have it dispersed. And all the time there was this problem of dispersing sand and that's why at Stalagra 3 you ended up with about 250 penguins people who would go around with bags down their trouser leg and try and get rid of the sand uh, Harry, the tunnel Harry was helped by a change in policy because it was essentially dug over a two week period uh, the, the last tranche of it in the winter in early 1944 it meant that there was no lighting around at night and people could carry kit bags full of sand and dump it below the tiered seating in the theatre, in the 350-seat theatre. So they weren't having to disperse it around the camp 
in the gardens and everywhere else. And that's what really the ferrets and the guards were looking out for. As soon as they saw sand that didn't match the ground, they knew that a tunnel was in, in train. And Harry benefited from not having to do that. They had dumped the sand somewhere else. And a lot of the sand of the first tunnel, Tom, was dumped in the tunnel dick. So you know, that tunnel was basically filled up with sand. So it was really Tom that was built and was then discovered and Harry that wasn't discovered until the escape happened, until the 76 men got out. Uh, so, But we'll come to that story later. And the digging of these tunnels in the sand, of course, was very dangerous because, you know, they could collapse. Oh, you always got sand falls. You always got roof collapses. And there was a worry that the Germans would pick the tunnels up by microphone. They had dug microphones all round these camps, certainly at Stalagluft III, which is why those tunnels, if you look at uh, Tunnel Harry, it was 28 feet deep. They went under the clay layer, they went under the microphone layer, and they, they were pretty deep. They were narrow. And a lot of the men were pretty claustrophobic when it came to the actual escape attempt. I mean, you're talking about a tunnel that was 336 feet long yes. from the shaft right. to the tunnel face. By the time it came up, it was 20 feet deep. So the, the, the terrain had, had changed. But they were certainly deep tunnels. And the tunnels, I mean, you, you, could you pass someone in the tunnel or was it just no. one, one man wide? No, it was one man wide, but they had halfway houses. Uh, tunnel Harry had two halfway points. They, it had Piccadilly Circus and it had Leicester Square. Those were about eight feet long and three feet wide. So you could have another man uh, on the sidings, if you like, at those points. But the rest of the tunnel was incredibly narrow, which is one of the reasons that they couldn't get the 200 out that they wanted to get out, because people were carrying suitcases and lying on these trolleys, being pulled along. And quite often, the trolleys tipped up or the suitcases got stuck. Uh, these people hadn't escaped before, a lot of them. So they, they didn't listen to instructions. Trying to get all those men to actually obey what they had been told was very difficult indeed. In The Great Escape, 76 famously got out, but there were other escape attempts where large numbers escaped. Um, off Lag 7B, for instance. Yes, that was in Bavaria, and 65 got out from there. I think it was uh, 1943, wasn't it? They dug a tunnel from the latrine out beyond the wire and came up in a hen coop. So, so you could emerge anywhere, and, and sometimes it was a bit hit and miss. When Tunnel Harry was dug and those guys got out at Stalaglove 3, uh, they came up 10 feet shy of the edge of the fir woods. And one of the problems with Stalaglove 3 is that they kept on bringing Russian workers in that were cutting back the forest in order to make more compounds, which is why by the time the war ends, Stalaglove 3 had grown from containing 2,000 prisoners, containing 10,000 prisoners. They just added compounds, and it kept on interrupting the tunnelling effort because you didn't know which, which direction to aim your tunnel. You'd end up in another camp. Yes, Tom, Dick and Harry, two of the tunnels, the first two headed west, and Harry headed north. You, know, you were basically choosing parts of the camp, one where you thought the Germans uh, wouldn't investigate, and two that you, you thought there wouldn't be another camp springing up in the near future. OK, so it was all very well to 
have an idea to escape, but you had to have an organisation to make it work. Tell us, Jamie, how it was organised. Well, key to everything, and I think the priority of any escape is really security. And, and that can't be stressed enough. It's amazing how much the Germans could pick up from having a ferret loiter by an open window. So people started becoming extremely careful in what they said. Everything was given a code name. The forgers at Stalaglo III were called Dean and Dawson, uh, which was named after a travel agent in London, a famous travel agent. Security ensured that people weren't doing anything daft. People weren't uh, doing things that might give the bigger picture away. And so there was this constant battle to try and provide blind alleys for the Germans, you know, sometimes to dig fake tunnels to divert them. You know, it was a big industry. So they were really key to the whole thing actually getting off the ground. And they've probably never been given the, the accolade that they should get because none of those tunnels, none of those attempts would have succeeded without very tight security. And it's like all these things in, in any kind of war, that the one man sitting in his trench at the front line is backed up by a huge number of other people doing things that without which he wouldn't be able to succeed. I mean, you have, for instance, the escape intelligence section who would deal with all the trains and travel restrictions, passes, borders and the local area. How on earth did they find out all this information? Well, a lot of that came from prisoners who were recaptured and brought back and we, we've said this before, but it, it's really an evolutionary process that people wised up to it. And all the escapers involved in the Great Escape, for example, from Stalagra III, had escaped before. All the people in Kulditz, the bad boys, they were all put there because they had relentlessly pursued escape attempts. So once it became an industry, once there was more focus and organisation, there was a lot of ingenuity. And we're talking about guys who were technically adept. I mean, the Royal Air Force had some of the best technicians, some of the best innovators in the business. And so when it came to everything from mechanicals to carpentry to metal work to uh, producing air systems for the tunnels, forging, you had this great repository of talent from the RAF that were in the camps and people signed up to their specialisation and it began from there and intelligence was so critical. There was no point getting out if you couldn't get further than a mile. So you had to know what were the Germans wearing, what were the permits that were required, what were the train times, did you ask for food in a station, could you get food in a station without a voucher. All these things had to be known. Just knowing basics such as how long could you stay in a German hotel before the police start investigating, and that was actually three days, that was critical to a successful escape for getting people as far as they could to the border. And there were people who, who had skied before the war, who knew the Swiss border, and so they provided the intelligence. This all fed into the intelligence organisation. And as the tunnels developed, there would be briefings to those involved, those who were going to get out. And the briefing started weeks beforehand. Uh, and there were German classes, there were 
orientation classes, the behavioral classes. I mean, people really put an effort into it. And it, it was an industry and it was highly successful. Uh, and where were they trying to escape to? What were the general views of which was the best place to head for? Well, people tried all sorts of things. I mean, the, the Czech border at Stalingrad 3 was only 50, 60 miles away. Um, you know, from Kulditz, Switzerland was about 400 miles away. Berlin from places like Stalingrad 3 were about 100 miles away, but obviously they didn't want to head there. So, it, it, again, it evolved during the war. Some people went to Switzerland, headed for Switzerland at the start of the war, but towards the end of the war, they were heading for the West to places like Denmark or France. A lot of people headed for Danzig, for the Baltic ports, trying to get to Sweden. And actually there was uh, an RAF officer, Buckley, who was key to the whole process of developing this escape organisation with with people like Wings Day and Roger Bushell. And he and a Dutchman got to the Danzig area, uh, got into a canoe and started paddling because they wanted to get the three miles across to Sweden. But the Dutchman's body turned up and Buckley was never found, and they think that they might have been hit by a ship. So no one knows. There was always a risk in those sort of operations, but no one went the same route. If you had four or six people getting out, and they tended to use a buddy system, so you went in pairs, because once you were beyond the wire, if you were on your own, it was very difficult keeping your spirits and morale up. It was better if you had someone there to caution you against doing something stupid, to caution you against going over a bridge that was probably guarded by a sentry, or going into a hotel which might be watched. So they always went in teams of two, and none of them went the same way. They they tended by the end of the war to go in disparate directions and choose different directions. It's always been said that in the local Sargon station near Stalaglov III during the Great Escape, everyone was wearing such amazing clothes that they they ended up looking like currants in a pudding because they were so obvious by their fantastic clothing. <laughs> so and and um, and their cheap looking suitcases. Yes, it was quite often noted that their cheap-looking suitcases really stood out because, of course, they were usually made from cardboard. And uh, Airy Neve, of course, his German uniform when he got out of Colditz, the leggings were made from cardboard. So cardboard was extremely important. And people turned their hands to everything. Uh, We've talked about security and intelligence, but every other industry was involved, principally the forgers, Dean and Dawson, they managed to bribe guards, they had a look at their passes, they got cameras so they could take photographs to provide photographs for the ID cards. And this is one of the problems for the staff. Once there was a big escape, there would be a crackdown among the German security and there would be arrests and people would be executed or sent to the Eastern Front. And it was a complete no-no uh, getting uh, photographic material to the prisoners. But there were always going to be German collaborators, people who could be bribed with cigarettes or chocolate to give them printing ink, for example, so they could make maps, to get them photographic material, to get them anything they wanted, basically. And this became easier towards the end of the war as as the situation developed? Yes, as German morale plummeted, you tended to get people who were far more likely to turn against the Nazis or at least be more considerate to the prisoners. And 
some of them were incredibly brave. At uh, Hedekrug, which was Stalag Lush 6, where the NCAs were based, the RAF NCAs were based, there was an amazing guy called Munkert who collaborated with the British and got them anything they wanted, was actually visiting Danzig and checking up contacts for them among Swedish sailors and seeing if people could get them out. And he collaborated with Grimson, the incredibly brave Brit who was roaming around trying to set up escape organisations, and eventually Munkert and several other German staff in the administration of that camp ended up being vanished by the Gestapo. They just were probably tortured to death or shot. Um, So they had unhappy endings, unfortunately. But you got collaboration in all the camps. If you think of it from the point of view of a ferret, they didn't want to spend years simply facing hostility from prisoners every day of their life. So what the Allies did was create what they called contacts, And there was one person who was put on to every ferret to try and cultivate them, to try and break them down. And in Stalaglo III, there was one ferret called Rudy. And they used to invite him in for cigarettes and tea every day. And he was sitting there about three feet away from the tunnel entrance of Harry, which was under a stove. So there was a lot of interaction. Do you know if if he survived, survived the war? I don't know about no. that, but he, I think he was imprisoned, actually. A lot of the guards were imprisoned, along with the commandant, after the Great Escape. And uh, three workmen were apparently executed because... So the commandant uh, was, was imprisoned by Gestapo? Yes, was he, was, he, was, he lost his job. He was a Luftwaffe man. It was a Luftwaffe camp, of course, uh, run by Hermann Goering's organisations, and kept independent from the others. But after the Great Escape and towards the end of the war in 1944 onwards, Himmler and the SS and his Gestapo were becoming ever more important, ever more powerful. But this comes on to another allied hobby, which was thieving. I mean, everything was pinched. And the Gestapo, on many occasions, went to Stalagluf III, certainly after the Great Escape, and to Kulditz to show the other German guards how it should be done. What happened? Everything they were carrying was pinched. At Stalagluf III, there was one prisoner who pinched a pistol, but he was persuaded to put it back by his commanding officer because it could have led to reprisal executions. So a lot of documents went. At Kulditz, the, the Brits managed to take uh, a set of keys from the pocket of a Gestapo man and all their trilbies. It meant that the Brits had keys for every single door in Kulditz. Did you say trilbies? They, yes, they took trilby hats from they the Gestapo. They could cut a dash on the, on, 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 in well, the was, exercise yard. Well, well, it was great for escape. Yeah, of course. So, and torches. But, but they, <clears> they handed the keys back to the commandant, having taken impressions. And the, the commandant was delighted at Kulditz because it had shown up the Gestapo. And they had to leave with their tails between their legs. So, you know, thieving was a hobby. And quite often it was organised. And those contacts could get anything they wanted. You know, be it ink or paper or pencils or things that could help the escape. Pat Reed at Kulditz broke into the dentist surgery and he writes a really funny piece in the Kulditz story where he said he used all the dentist tools to make keys 
And he felt rather bad when he could hear the yells and screams <laughs> of patients because he had blunted all the instruments late. But you know, this was an ongoing process. And so whether it was forgery or the tailors, anything could be adapted. And the tailors were brilliant. I mean, you could put in an order and they'd produce a suit. And RAF uniforms were quite good at, for turning into suits. Dutch greatcoats were good at turning into German army greatcoats. Naval uniforms could be, could be turned into rather smart-looking greatcoats. So everything could be adapted. You know, braces could be turned into rucksack straps, for example. You could turn anything into a cloth cap. And I, I should think, given how cold it was in the winter there, that the people who had their greatcoats removed wouldn't have been very happy about that. No, probably not. But there was a big clothing supply at any um, camp oh, well, around They would Germany. be sent? Uh, not only would the they be, not only, well, not only be sent, but, but quite often they would just be accumulated. If you could bribe a German guard or a German official, uh, things would be stolen and delivered. There was one Luftwaffe general who visited Stalagra III, and by the time he had left, his personal papers had been stolen, the toolbox had been stolen, <laughs> I mean, everything in the car had been taken. So uh, th there was actually a formal letter saying, please, can you give back me back my personal papers? Because he could have got into trouble. So th there was this ongoing pilfering and this ongoing industry to produce gear for escape. And that's before you even got onto the tunnelers. Yes, the exactly. I wanted to, to mention in this in the organisation, you know, key is the tunnelers. What about them? Yes, they, they, they were much sought. Some tunnelers veered to the left or the right when they were tunnelling. Everyone had their little foible. And well, was, well, not politically, you mean? No, no, no. <laughs> no, just in terms of the direction. Yeah. They, they had to keep the tunnel straight, and that was always a problem. They had a shift system going, and a lot of them were caught by falls of sand but were dragged out by their tunnelling partner. It was very claustrophobic work and often dangerous work and unpleasant work. We've talked about the penguins. The South Africans had a system. They didn't have bags down there. They actually had two pairs of trousers, and so you just, they just tipped the sand down the inside pair of trousers. So they, they were walking like they were walking as if they had some seriously unpleasant condition. But uh, but but yeah. they were extremely good at getting the sand out and dispersing yeah. it. And and then of course you had the stooges, the lookouts, and there were 150 of those at Stalagla three. You had the duty pilots as they were called who'd sit near the gate and note which ferrets were coming in. So what the ferrets started to do was climb over the wire, but you couldn't get anywhere in a camp without being spotted. So then the ferrets built hides out in the woods, on the fringes of the woods, looking back into the camp and watching from there. And at one stage, because they wanted to find out where the was, they got a diviner in who marched up and down with a pendulum trying to find out where... <laughs> where a tunnel might be getting dug. It's like and, Professor Calculus from Tintin. Well, yes, and, the, and what happened? The, the prisoners just lined up and were jeering and shouting and completely putting him Mocking off his stride. Him, yeah. Yes, and that's, that's what the prisoners tended to do. I mean, they had to create their own entertainment. Having musicians, having performers was very good for distraction. You know, at, at one stage in 1944, Christmas 1944, the prisoners of Stalagla III managed to put on entire production of the Messiah, complete with an 80-man choir and a full orchestra. So <laughs> there, was, there was a lot going on. 
And, and, and the Stooges, how did they communicate? Did they have whistles or, or what was they, they hung things out of windows. They had runners. The duty pilot at the gate always had a runner who would run off and they'd do a one-hour shift. Even so, they quite often missed key details or missed someone slipping in through the gate. So it, it wasn't a perfect system, but it actually, on the whole, worked very well. And Yeah, and it, it must have helped with morale. And I mean, they must have outnumbered the Germans by a considerable amount as well. They certainly outnumbered the Germans who were coming into the camp. That's that's for sure. I mean, at Kulditz, the number of Germans actually outnumbered the prisoners because they were seen as problem children. So they really were very tightly guarded. But it's a credit to all of them that they actually managed to produce any escape attempts at all, that they actually got some home runs and wind up the Germans in the process. The equipment that was used was mainly manufactured in the camps, but there was also some equipment that was smuggled in by the pilots when they were captured. Yes, and also in parcels sent from home if they could get them. The stuff from Britain, the stuff sent by CT6, run by Charles Fraser Smith, was the sort of equipment that would be carried by air crew anyway. And it included mini compasses that were in their fly buttons or in their collar studs. They would carry hacksaws, uh, flexible hacksaws that could be disguised in their shoelaces or in their shirt collars or jacket collars. So there was some very useful stuff, basic stuff. And, of course, maps, silk maps, that could be hidden in the linings of jackets or shirts. So they started, in a sense, with an advantage, an advantage that a lot of army men didn't have, you know, the RAF were kitted out right from the start. And they could develop that kit as well. I mean, you know, as the war went on, they could add new things if they thought of them. Yes, they evolved some very specialist tools, and they had some great frame saws, they had specialist boring tools. They managed to fix up lighting systems. You know, we've talked about the cable being stolen from the Germans and being used to light Tunnel Harry. They... they, they adapted and evolved many of the things and they kept their escape kit and they were trying to get into the mindset of being escapers they they had to know the information outside but they also had to have a mindset that meant they wouldn't be caught out there was a moment that pat reed was escaping and he got out but near the swiss border he bought his train tickets and turned around and went, Hank, I've got the tickets in English in front of the Germans there. But they actually managed to get away with it. And you know, there's that scene in The Great Escape where a German talks to him in English and he, uh, one of the characters, I think it was Gordon Jackson, wasn't it, replied in English and gave himself away. And that that was always happening. There was always that story, wasn't it, that uh, the Nazis were going to drop fake nuns into Britain as spies and the way to test whether or not they were real nuns was if they were sitting on the bus next you would drop something in their lap and if they were a real nun they would open their legs to catch the object but if they were a, a man disguised as a nun they would close their legs <laughs> <laughs> i don't know which yeah. you know, which where i read that but i've always liked that story. yeah there were there were always 
tips for actually behaving outside and what you should do and how civilians would behave. But the kit was critical, whether it was made in the camp or smuggled in by MI9, the escape organization, uh, and provided by CT6. So, yeah, the kit was the kit was there and the kit was important, but a compass was probably the most important thing of all. I've got uh, my grandfather's escape... Well, it wouldn't be his escape map, but I found an escape map in his military chest, which is a really beautiful uh, sort of silk handkerchief. It's actually... I framed it and stuck it on the wall. But the detail of the Reich Autobahn and all the other roads and so on throughout the whole of Germany on this one piece of silk is phenomenal. And a lot of the escapers actually carried three maps. Quite often they were the larger scale ones and then as you got towards the border area they could use uh, ones that were one mile to an inch. So they were very detailed and they would reproduce them using gelatin, using mimeographs. You'd get gelatin blocks, boil them up, turn them into a gelatin surface, and then ink a map out, put it on the jelly, and then you could print 20 to 40 more maps from that printer, from that rudimentary printer. So again, it was another bit of escape kit. And tobacco tins had wire in that could be used for making the rungs of ladders, rope ladders to get out. So all this kit was coming in and it was being adapted. Just as Klim, the milk tins, the condensed milk tins coming in in Red Cross parcels were being used to create the air ducts for the tunnels. And the German staff was supposed to perforate all the tins and tip the food out. But there were so many parcels, they just gave up in the end. And that is one of the reasons that the commandant and his men got into severe difficulty and severe trouble after the Great Escape of 1944. Post-war, there was still worry about prisoner of war situations. There was a possibility that the Soviets could take Western Europe and there'd be stay-behind operations and we'd still have prisoners of war. So... The Q section of MI6 that had absorbed a lot of the SOE assets and technology departments started coming up with kit also aimed at prison of war escape. And one of the items that always impressed me was contact lenses that would make someone look as though they had cataracts, they wouldn't be sent for forced labour. So these were the sorts of things that the specialists were thinking about. MI6 were also thinking, again, just as people were during the Second World War, on the best way to get away and evade bloodhounds and tracker dogs. So during the Second World War, people were doing everything from putting German mustard on their boots to spraying their shoes with lemon juice, uh, pepper. They just tried everything. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And the Second World War certainly was a great laboratory for learning these lessons and these techniques. Great. Well, let's talk about the camps, Jamie. The most famous camp, probably, is Kolditz. Yes, it's pretty bleak. I've never thought of it as the fairy tale castle that some people talk about. Having been there, I just know, walking into the prisoner section of the castle, that is based around a compound, based around a courtyard that is 40 yards by 30 yards. I know that I would be tunnelling with a teaspoon through that within 24 
hours. You don't want to be looking onto that for several years. It's on a slope. The prisoners did as much as they could to entertain themselves. They had extremely rowdy games of football or uh, rugger on those cobbles. Other prisoners from other nationalities would, would, would look on rather bemused at the rough play of the British and the incredible competitiveness that was going on at the time. But eventually they came round to it and they were playing the same sort of games. And the Brits were based 60 feet above ground. When you go there today, it's very moving because you, you, you come across wall paintings of pheasants and things like that. It's, it's, is, it, is it occupied today or is it a museum? It's essentially a museum. Before the war, it was a lunatic asylum. So it explains why there was a dentist surgery there, for example. You know, it was kitted out with things, but it was really rudimentary and really unpleasant. And, and But every corner, every buttress was scanned and examined as a potential escape route. Uh, even in the solitary confinement, even in the cooler dungeon, there was a little terrace where the prisoner could exercise. And one prisoner um, leapt off that terrace, clung onto the barred window below and to the side, and then dropped about 30 feet down to the ground and made his escape from there. So uh, there was one British tunnel that started several stories up above the courtyard and went down a buttress, went down the inside of a buttress. And it was eventually discovered by the Germans. The, the, the French started a tunnel from a clock tower and went 100 feet down from there. And if you go there today, you can find tunnel entrances that were in the chapel. It, it, it's extraordinary. It was a very porous castle, even though the Germans thought it was escape-proof. And nothing ultimately is escape-proof when prisoners have time on their hands and want to get away. I mean, it is a very long way from the border, though. It's a long way from the border. It's about 400 miles from the Swiss border. And that's why the people who got out really had to be the best at their game. And that's why there weren't many successful escapes. The Brits, I think, had three. Bader ended up there, didn't he? Yes, he did. They confiscated his legs because he made several attempts to escape. He was never going to get away with prosthetic limbs, uh, particularly the tin legs of that generation. It made fast going very difficult, and you'd stand out in a crowd. And so, but you know, what he really wanted to do was just goon bait. That was really his focus you know he knew that whatever he did he probably wasn't going to get away but he was going to make a damn good fist of it and and annoy, annoy the germans in, at yeah, the same the time yeah. oh, completely in fact my mother knew someone who worked at kulditz uh, she was a woman who worked i think probably in the translation section or in the censorship section she knew Bader and absolutely worshipped him, thought he was incredibly charismatic, courageous. He had a huge following among the other prisoners, was very popular. So that's Kolditz. The other famous camp, of course, was Starleg Luft Three, And apart from the Great Escape, there was another a famous attempt which was successful called the Wooden Horse or the Trojan Horse, uh, where three men managed to escape. And I have to mention my mum's godfather again because he was in that camp uh, in ch charge of the distractions when they made their escape. And then there was a film made 
called the Wooden Horse in the 50s, and his brother, David Tomlinson, who was a well-known actor at the time, played a part in that very movie. So was he doing some of the vaulting? I don't know. I haven't watched the film for a very long time. It's probably prep school time, so I probably should watch it and see where he is. Yeah, come on, Tom. I don't G- think give, they... us a, give us a cartwheel. <laughs> that could be the end of this podcast series. <laughs> so was a crap. He, didn't, he didn't play his brother in the film. He played another character. Oh, right. As we hear a crash as you go out through the window. <laughs> but the Trojan horse... My own attempt to escape from this podcast. Yes, yeah, okay. there is no escape. The goons will get you. But the Trojan horse, the wooden horse, was an extraordinary attempt. And uh, at first it was turned down by the escape committee. They said, this is absolutely ludicrous. But Flight Lieutenant Williams persisted. And it turned out to be one of the most famous escapes of the Second World War, uh, hence the movie. And on 8th of July, 1943, he started digging. And what had happened, they had constructed a vaulting horse out of crates and bits of wood. It was carried to its location uh, by four other POWs who were lifting it with poles. And it had to look as if it was really light, even though it was carrying uh, one or two tunnelers inside it, including Williams. They put it on the ground. And then for the next three months, essentially, uh, men were doing their physical exercise. They were vaulting over it and running around it and doing boxing things around it. Uh, you name it, anything to distract the Germans. There were two German watchtowers there on the east compound of Stalaglov Three, And Williams and his companions uh, essentially tunnelled 100 feet under the wire. They suffered terribly for it. I mean, the, the, the tunnel was only shored up with wood for the first few feet. It was two feet underground. The shaft itself was three feet underground. It was only 18 inches square. So it was a very narrow passage to get along. There were no clim tins this time, like the Great Escape tunnels, because this was very rudimentary. It was more like a mole tunnel. There were no air passages pushed through to the surface above. So they suffered terribly. Williams was very ill as a result and almost didn't make the escape because his health suffered. But come early October 1943, they managed to break out at night and they made home runs. So it was a spectacular success. Extract two. By about 2.30am, the delays had taken their toll. Escapees 101 to 200 were told to stand down, but Day and more than 40 others continued to wait. Finally, Frank Day's moment came, down into the tunnel, onto a trolley. He was pulled forward. I got to Piccadilly Circus, he remembers. There were perhaps two men ahead of him, 50 yards to freedom. While he waited to move to Leicester Square, he realised that something had gone wrong. Outside, a hard arser had emerged from the tunnel almost at the feet of a sentry, who saw the tracks in the snow and fired into the woods. We never heard it in the tunnel, says Day, but he knew the escape had been rumbled. He shouted to the men behind him, I said, bloody hell, something's happening at the other end. Those at the tunnel's exit now frantically headed back into it. Day began reversing as best as he could. I came back into the hut, there was a panic on. There were all these goons in the room saying, Rouse, rouse, move it. The cooler awaited. Day and about ten others were led off to a regime of two slices of bread in the morning and all the water we wanted. 
and they made it, unlike most of the men, the prisoners of war, in the Great Escape in '44, who were mostly shot. Yes, 50 of them were shot, as an example. Uh, apparently what happened, Hitler broke into a total rage. Keitel was there, his chief of staff, also known as La Keitel in German, or Lichtspittel, uh, because he had his tongue so firmly up the backside of the Führer. And Goering was there, and Himmler was there. And as we discussed earlier, the strength, the power of the SS, of Himmler, was growing. Goering's authority was diminishing. So uh, taking a more extreme approach, killing the prisoners, was something that Himmler was quite capable and willing to do, to make an example. And the Germans were terrified at the time, certainly by 1944, of mass insurrection, mass mutiny among the forced labourers in Germany. And there were millions of them. And given that 12 of the POWs who escaped down Tunnel Harry were heading for the Czech border, it was thought that they were going to link up with the Czech resistance. So there was definitely this underlying worry among the Germans. And they wanted to deal with it. They wanted to put an end to these escape attempts. Had the people the year before been caught, probably nothing would have happened. They would have been put in the cooler. But by 1944, the atmosphere had changed. The environment was altered. And Hitler insisted that there were going to be murders, there were going to be killings, retribution. Goering argued that not all the 73 who were recaptured out of the 76 who got out should be killed, that half or more than half should be killed, but not all of them. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, the process was done, the ones who were going to be killed, usually the ones without children, actually, were chosen. Ironically enough, the SS man who chose the names, ended up being killed himself during an internal feud within his organisation and was executed. Yes, so, that was after the um, attempted assassination of Hitler. Yes, so there were all sorts of repercussions. What happened was that the prisoners were assembled and they were taken out in batches and murdered by the Gestapo. Some were told what was going to happen to them and there was a very moving eyewitness account by a Gestapo man who said that they showed no emotion at all. They took it in their stride. Another batch were allowed to get out of the vehicles, were told to relieve themselves, have a pit stop on the way, and they spotted the body of the, one of their comrades who had been taken out in the car earlier, lying in the field. So they made a run for it and were all shot in the back. And they were cremated... Ultimately, their belongings and their ashes were sent back to Stalaglov III. And it was known immediately, really, among the British POWs that they had been executed, firstly because of the round number of 50, and secondly because not a single one was wounded. They were all killed, and they had orders not to put up a resistance when they were rearrested. It was a policy among POW escapees that they weren't going to resist arrest. So it was ludicrous for the Germans to claim that they had resisted arrest, and no one believed it at all. It was immediately known that they hadn't done that. 
and they were pursued, the Gestapo officers, after the war, uh, taken to war crimes, and a number of them were hanged. Yes, they were rigorously pursued. I mean, there were 25,000 interviews among the internment camps, among the Gestapo and SS, and 18 were hanged. More were killed by the Russians and the Poles and the Czechs who got hold of some of the people involved. But 28 vanished, well over two dozen vanished, and were never caught. But we've said this before, that the denazification, the pursuit of Nazi war criminals was pretty sporadic and haphazard. But then Europe was in chaos and Europe wanted to move on. Once the Allies were landed in Europe and making their way towards Germany, what happened to these prisoners in these camps? Well, there were also the Russians coming from the east. So uh, Germany was slowly being impinged upon and no one quite knew what was going to happen. They weren't sure whether the Russians would get to them first, whether they would be evacuated. But what the Germans did was essentially evacuate the camps and send people on forced marches through those terrible snows in 44, late 44, early 1945. Stalaglov III, people were sent on these forced marches and other camps in other concentration camps and labour camps, they were called death marches because so many died. At E715 near Auschwitz III, the British POWs were walking for three days over the corpses of Jewish prisoners who had been evacuated from their labour camp. There were just prisoners in striped pyjamas, what the British POW called the stripies, just corpses frozen and shot all the way along the road. It was horrific. And it's hardly surprising that survivors like Dennis Avey, who wrote about it in The Man Who Got Into Auschwitz, talked about living in obscenity. It was just hell on earth what they endured. No one knew, certainly back in Britain, what was going to happen to the prisoners who were on these westward marches from camps like Hedekrug and the Camp at Stalagler III, for example. They were all sent on these marches, and they were already incredibly hungry. By that stage, food was really down to its basics. Germany was on the brink of collapse, and it was chaos. And there were moments when the column was attacked. There were Royal Navy officers who were killed by a mosquito that came in low and attacked the rear of the column. So... This was going on all the time, and they were very lucky, eventually, the different groups who had been evacuated, to get to safety. The war petered out, Germany surrendered, and those prisoners were saved and flown back to Britain. Uh, At one stage, the, the ones who were under Soviet control didn't know whether they would become pawns in the ongoing political game and wouldn't be sent back, but they were flown back in the end, but they had a very rough time. I have to finish, I'm afraid, the story of my mum's godfather because he was, of course, involved in that himself. And uh, in that terrible march, he said he did describe it as appalling. They had one or two blankets between three of them. And when they were allowed to rest, they had to lie as three of them and the one in the middle was warming up while the two on the outside tried to keep the middle one warm. And they managed to... Uh, survived this march uh, in very poor condition and eventually he found himself back in England on a train to High Wycombe, Bomber Command headquarters. And he got out at the station and, having been my grandfather's ADC, 
in 3940. He wasn't sure if he'd even be remembered. So he rang up the headquarters and said, can I speak to Arthur Harris or can I speak to the CNC? The phone was put straight through to my grandfather who picked it up and said hello. And he said, hello, sir, it's Peter. Peter who? Peter Tomlinson. And he said, where have you been? I've had a plane on standby ever since I heard that you were all going to be sent back here. Uh, He said, well, I'm at the station. And so he sent his Bentley down to the station to pick him up and brought him back to his home and cooked him a boiled egg. You probably missed that. And in the morning, my mum, who was a little girl, went in to see this mysterious man who was her godfather. He wasn't in his bed. And she searched the bedroom and she found him asleep on the floor. And he said to her, this little face looking down at him, he said, yeah, I I was so excited to get into this lovely bed, but I couldn't sleep in it. It was too soft. I had to sleep on the floor. And didn't he write in the visitor book? Yes, in the visitor's book it says Peter Tomlinson and this other very shy officer who'd been with him, who could barely speak a word, and they just put their names in the visitor's book and where the address is they just put P-O-W. And it, it was a searing experience for so many of them. It was not pleasant and I think the films don't capture the grimness of it. There is a tiny little add-on, which is that years later, when I travelled after leaving school to Africa uh, on a trip, I stayed with Peter Tomlinson, um, uh, and um, we had a great time there. I was working in Cape Town, it's living in his house. And when he discovered that the main thing I liked to eat, uh, cook was baked beans and scrambled eggs, he loved me to cook him supper almost every night, baked beans and scrambled eggs, because his stomach really couldn't cope with any food more than a very simple, small amount. Yes, they, they were very close to starving in those camps. It was really, really tough. And I remember Primo Levi writing the line about Auschwitz III, which was, death begins with the shoes, because... For those in labour camps, and British POWs were better off than so many in those labour camps, uh, for those people in forced labour in labour camps, uh, if they got a blister from their clogs, they then started to limp. If they started to limp, they slowed down, and if they slowed down, they were gassed or beaten or shot. So it's worth remembering that many others had it even harder. Before we bring this to a close, we might mention a couple more uh, lucky escapes, uh, Corporal Burns of the SAS, and also the famous Forgotten Highlander. Yes, there were so many escapes in different guises, really, during the Second World War. Uh, Corporal Burns had been on the dreadful parachute drop Operation Squatter in late 1941 in North Africa, which was a disaster. He ended up walking for 50 miles a night to get to freedom, was captured by the Italians. He was struck across the face with a pistol by an officer and it went off and wounded him in the face. He went to several prisoner of war camps, ended up cycling for miles on a bicycle with flat tyres. So he just stuffed the tyres with grass and pedalled on and eventually he did make an escape and got to freedom and there were others who commandeered boats and managed to get down the length of Italy to safety but Alistair Urquhart and his book The Forgotten Highlander is an extraordinary account 
he was with the Gordon Highlanders, was captured aged 19 in Singapore, sent to work on the Death Railway, on the Burma Railway, the famous bridge over the River Kwai, caught cholera, was tortured, malaria, dysentery, all these sorts of things. And eventually he was put on a hell ship by the Japanese. On board that ship, conditions were so terrible. There was no water, no food. People were resorting to cannibalism. It was torpedoed. He floated in the water for five days with no food or water, being sunburnt, was picked up again, was torpedoed again, was found on an atoll, was handed over to the Japanese, was sent to Nagasaki, worked down a coal mine. And he was in Nagasaki when the atomic bomb was dropped. And he survived that as well. One of the more poignant stories within the overall tale of the Forgotten Highlander was of a kid in the prison of war camp called Freddy, who was essentially the gopher. He stole food from the Japanese, kept the prisoners cheerful, uh, tried to get provisions from anywhere he could. After the war, he used to ring Urquhart every day and was obviously in a parlous state and used to say, well, in the camp I was somebody and out here I'm nobody. And age 19, he died from drink. It just goes to show that so many never really fully escaped what they had got through during the war. And I think this boy, Freddie, really is symbolic of that, that uh, of how incredibly harrowing the conditions were for so many prisoners, whether it was in Germany or whether it was in the Far East. It was remarkable how many of the men who did survive the camps, like Alistair Urquhart, despite everything that happened to him, uh, they managed to live uh, quite a long time afterwards. And he, in fact, uh, died in October 2016, aged 97. But I, I must also mention one more escape before we get to our PS. That's Winston Churchill in the Boer War. It's a, it's a famous event. It's well documented. But having discussed all of this now and how difficult it was to escape, especially when you were behind the war, it is quite remarkable, given his remarkable life, that he managed to achieve this as well as all those other things. I mean, it was the Boer War, so it was 1899 in South Africa. On Wednesday, the 15th of November, 1899, he was on a patrol with an armoured train. He was both a soldier and a reporter. The train was ambushed. It was well known by the uh, General Bota uh, what was going on. It wasn't being accompanied by any cavalry, so it was an easy target. Rocks were put on the track and the train was derailed. Winston Churchill acted bravely and was under fire for about 90 minutes. He managed to organise the escape of about 50 survivors, but he himself was captured. He was lucky not to be shot as a spy, but uh, at the time he was captured, he was unarmed. He'd left his gun in the engine of the train. And he claimed he was a journalist and he should be released. But Jan Smuts, who was assessing who he was and what he was up to, assessed him as a combatant and sent him to the state model school prison in Pretoria. He hated being locked up, like so many of these men. He actually said he hated it more than any other period in his life. So on Tuesday the 12th of December 1899, he climbed over the wall of the latrine railings and then he made his escape. There were two others that were meant to escape with him, but they didn't come over the wall. 
He walked through Pretoria at night, planning to cross to the Portuguese East African state, which is now known as Mozambique, uh, 300 miles away. He had no kit, no compass, nothing. Uh, But he set his direction by following the stars of Orion, which he'd followed the previous year when he was lost in the desert in North Africa uh, and he needed to get to the Nile. He got on a train which went in the wrong direction and he had an uncomfortable encounter with the vulture. But after wandering about and being driven by extreme hunger, he eventually knocked on the door and luckily knocked on the door of a John Howard, who was a mining engineer but a Brit. He took him in, hid him in his cellar for three days and some others helped him. Then they stowed him on a a coal truck to Lorenzo Marx. I think this story demonstrates how fortunate Winston Churchill was. He had a magnificent guardian angel, but he managed to achieve something that very few people manage to achieve when they're a prisoner. Jamie, the PS. Lucky escapes. Yes, we do have a postscript, Tom. And we're going back to the First World War because there's some incredible aerial escapes. And the first one is... Captain Louis Strange. He was flying a Martinside S1 aircraft. Back then, there was no interrupter gear available, which would allow a pilot to fire a machine gun through a propeller. So Royal Flying Corps aircraft tended to have the machine guns on the top of the wings. He was attacking another plane. He ran out of ammo or there was a jam, and he stood up in his cockpit to deal with the Vickers gun that was above the wing, at which point the plane flipped over and he ended up hanging underneath the plane. The plane went into a dive. That allowed him to get his foot back into the cockpit, so he nudged the stick to the right. The plane flipped back over. He crashed back into the cockpit, the open cockpit, obviously, and managed to crush the wicker seat. So he then had to get the pieces of wicker from under the rudder pedals and managed to do so just before the plane was crashing, and it levelled out at treetop height, essentially, and he managed to land it, but was then bollocked by his commanding (laughs) officer for damaging the plane. So that was an extremely lucky escape from the Great War. There was another fellow called Captain Headley, who was flying in a two-seater with his pilot, uh, Lieutenant Jimmy Makepeace. He was in a Bristol fighter over France in 1918, and he was, uh, Makepeace put the plane into a steep dive and Headley, as the story goes, fell out. He claims he fell 700 feet before landing back on the tail of the plane and crawling back into the cockpit as it came out of a dive. I wonder if the pilots even noticed. It is the wacky races, isn't it? Yes. It, it's straight out of a cartoon. It's incredible. But World War II came up with its own extraordinary aerial escapes and acrobatics and there are three known cases where RAF aircrew fell out of aircraft and managed to survive even though they weren't wearing a parachute. One sergeant managed to fall 18,000 feet into a snowdrift. Another member of a bomber that was shot down dropped out of the aircraft with a parachute, was heading for certain death, but collided with someone from his own plane. And the other guy's parachute was opening at the time, and he managed to cling onto his legs, so both landed safely. 
So you got these amazing stories of people who actually survived these encounters. And in their own way, they are great escapes. There was a spectacular escape at 20,000 feet on 26th of April 1943 involving Sergeant Norman Jackson. His story is astonishing because he was in a Lancaster. They were bombing Schweinfurt, probably the ball-bearing factory there. His Lancaster bomber was attacked by a night fighter and he was wounded by shell fragments. The engine caught fire. It had spread towards the fuel tank and he decided to climb out and tackle it. So even though he was wounded, his parachute half opened as he was crawling out and the rest of the crew in the cockpit were holding on to the rigging to make sure he didn't fall off. So he climbed onto the wing, was holding on to the trailing edge to try and fight it. First of all, the extinguisher fell out of his hands. Then the Lancaster was attacked again by the night fighter. He took two bullets in his legs and he fell off the wing and his parachute was charred and he disappeared from view and the crew assumed he was dead. The Lancaster was doomed, so they ended up jumping out. And they met up with Jackson later, who was still alive. And what had happened, he had hit the ground rather hard, broken his ankle, was discovered, was paraded through the local German village. He suffered bad burns to his face and hands, eventually recovered, made two escape attempts from his prison to war camp, and his last one was successful. He made it to the US Army lines he was awarded the Victoria Cross. So we've got to end with a VC. Fantastic. And in fact, he had actually finished his tour of duty, but he wanted to go out with his crew for one more. And so this 31st mission was uh, one he didn't even have to take. Yes, amazing he made it that far. That great escape tune is welling up inside me. Please don't, Tom. But fear not, Jamie. I'll spare you. We've seen from this discussion that there's nothing actually romantic about being locked up as a prisoner of war the discomfort, the hunger, young men feeling their lives are in hideous limbo. No wonder we celebrate the very few who did manage to make their escape, their actions giving hope to their brothers in arms. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.